Welcome to the Transformative Ideas podcast. We have a new name, but still try to bring you the same insightful conversations with leading researchers from all over the world. Ideas really have the power to transform us and our guests frequently had their lives transformed by these ideas and their passion for them. In these conversations, we try to capture some of that passion and make it accessible to our listeners. I'm your host, Manuel Brenner. And now, without any further ado, let's jump right in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Transformative Ideas podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Letizia Parker-Labescu. I'll start with a short introduction as usual. So since 2019, you are doing your PhD and are also teaching at the Department of Computational Linguistics in Heidelberg. We're both in Heidelberg, but still recording this remotely, as is classic for post-COVID times, I guess. Um, your research focuses on multimodal learning, specifically on integrating vision and language for multimodal understanding. I think with generative models like DALI and stable diffusion, bridging the gap between vision and text in in very impressive manner, and of, of course large language models like ChatGPT taking over the world by storm. These are extremely exciting times to to study both vision and language, and also the intersection of those two modalities. But it's also important to to point out that you're not only a researcher but also a very active science communicator, and most of all with your successful YouTube channel, AI Coffee Break, that you host with your collaborator, Mrs. Coffee Bean, and that has gathered over 30,000 subscribers in recent years and is bringing a lot of very cool visual educational content about AI to a lot of people. So there's obviously a lot of stuff to talk about in that regard as well. But just as an icebreaker question, because of these developments in recent times, when you started your PhD in 2019, were you already planning to focus on this multimodal learning and vision and language? Or, and how surprised were you by recent developments? Or was it kind of a cognitive choice to, to pivot towards that because of these developments? Yeah, um, first of all, thanks for the introduction and thanks for having me here. And uh, yeah, and now coming to your question, when I started doing multimodal research, it was not as uh, hot as a topic like it is right now. And uh, yeah, I uh, started thinking, uh, cool, I it's not much happening in the field. Of course, something was happening. There was a visual question answering, for example, where uh, people are interested in this task of asking a question in natural language about an image because this has important applications uh, even, I mean, especially to help uh, visually impaired people because they could just point their uh, camera with their phone to the world and then they could ask natural language questions to the system and it would describe in natural language back what, uh, what it is seeing in the world. Yeah, so there was, uh, a, there were these kinds of tasks uh, and the the neural networks solving them were CNNs uh, for processing the vision and LSTMs for processing the language. And somehow people were combining the two vectors uh, that they were getting from the two modalities by concatenation, addition or something, nothing uh, super um, terribly complicated. And uh, there was kind of a certain accuracy on that, but um, and I thought, oh well, these uh, models are still very uh, rudimentary. I thought, and let's let's train a bigger, larger model. But then <laughs> it was like the interest grew, uh, especially because transformers uh, were proven to be able to work with any kind of modality as long as you represent the vision as tokens and image patches are converted to tokens and uh, text is tokenized anyway. Um, as long as you 
produce tokens from the modalities, you can process them with just one transformer. And uh, of course, I mean, uh, this this kind of research took off and uh, all big players were involved, uh, big companies and they're training multimodal models. And I mean, you can think of Clip uh, from from OpenAI and uh, it's it was just like, whoa, everything overnight <laughs> changed. <laughs> and uh, I think uh, now it's very interesting to, to analyze like, what uh, kind of representations do these models learn and how uh, how are they approaching the task and maybe it would be also an interesting study to to think about how humans are approaching this task because i also think that there is uh, too little research but i i, I think that's not my topic um, of research to to analyze humans i'm usually analyzing these uh, large models yeah so clip was kind of the the breakthrough moment in in the field or that that showed people that it was possible to to achieve this joint embedding a clip was a moment where very like it was so clear that uh, transformers are the way to go that everybody got a message but before that uh, people in the field like i was where um, we're still getting the message that uh, that transformers are the way to go because there were precursor architectures, uh, not with this contrastive objective, but the idea of processing uh, the, uh, both modalities with with transformers was already being used, and uh, there were there was a day on archive where three of these models were published at the same time. And before that, only two models were have been published. And since then, I, the, the list of, of these models has been growing uh, very um, much. And it's always bigger models, bigger data. Um, and uh, it's even unclear what exactly now is the objective that helps the most. I mean, of course, there's papers that analyze this. But um, it's kind of inconclusive because uh, it's not like when uh, when people train a new system, they just change the objective. They usually change the data too, and they usually change something in the architecture too. So uh, the it's not a good comparative study there. And people still are figuring out like what is now the best uh, objective. But for sure, more data is better than anything else. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that has been true for machine learning for a couple of decades now. Mm. But you, you mentioned that, yeah, at one point people realized that transformers are the way to go. Mm. So I, it's, I think that's too interesting to, to pass up now. And um, yeah, I've been wondering about this question myself because in machine learning, you have the free, no free lunch theorems mm. and this idea that there shouldn't be this kind of universal machine learning algorithm or some kind of optimization algorithm. So it's quite, a, quite puzzling why transformers both work for language and vision and for the kind of integrated um, modalities as well. So do you have any ideas why transformers are kind of looking like they are the free lunch algorithm? Yeah, uh, so actually it's not surprising uh, if you think about it at all, because let's think about other architectures that we, uh, I mean, the large public things, they're specialized for some modality, but they actually are not. So uh, CNNs, usually convolutional neural networks are used for images generally, but you can apply them for sound processing too, if you uh, don't want to do uh, 2D convolution, or but the 1D convolution, or you can even kind of uh, model sound as an image if you look at the spectrum of sound. So, uh, and that's what, for example, diffusion models generating sound do these days. They they just are basically image diffusion models, but you translate the sound into a computer spectrogram and you feed the spectrogram as an image to the computer. 
And yeah, so but CNNs with 1D convolutions, not 2D convolutions, were processing sound. Um, and uh, they there was were also architectures that were generating images pixel by pixel with LSTMs. So LSTM was that uh, the, the sequence model for, for language, but it was also being applied on images. It was just that the most successful and or let's say the most used architecture for images was CNNs. And there was reason, there's reasons for that. I mean, LSTMs are processing it very sequentially. An image has a lot of uh, pixels, if you think of it as a sequence, so it takes a long time. And the CNN just gets you uh, the result faster in inference, but also uh, you need to train it for a lot of times and do a lot of predictions in, in training. And therefore, uh, CNN could eventually get you the result where the LSTM would take too long. But uh, the idea of deep learning is that as long as your modality, so whatever your input is a vector, you can do uh, neural networks on it. It's just that some architectures arrive at um, at the result uh, and or, or train uh, to convergence and like orders of magnitudes uh, faster than others because some have uh, are more fit for um, for some modalities than others because they bring some inductive biases for example the um, the um, convolutional neural networks bring uh, translation uh, invariance if you have max pooling operations in it or equivariance uh, if you don't and it's uh, so yeah. It's it's not like there is one um, so that architectures haven't been used cross modally anyway. But um, and the transformer has uh, the upside that none of these architectures had so far, which is that they are very very parallel in the way they can do uh, inference and also like you have your input, you have uh, segmented like you have uh, put it into a uh, tokens, and these tokens can be image tokens for images and or text tokens and uh yeah and then they can do i mean you do need a self-attention computation and then you uh, can have the same fit for your network that you apply to each token and you can apply it in parallel so uh, something that so even like why was the transformer so successful on text before lsdms had to read the whole internet and they had to read it word by word and process it word after word and now transformers read the internet too but they don't have to wait for the previous word to have been processed they can do a whole uh, sentence in parallel or even longer a whole paragraph and that's how uh, language models have been become so powerful because before LSTMs didn't have time to read the whole internet, and now you can train the whole internet um, with transformers. So my my lesson is, uh, it's as long as it's a vector, you can do deep learning on it, and it's the smart choice what which deep learning algorithm you choose uh, to get eventually to the result. So you should choose the most efficient and the fastest um, one. Yeah, I guess we we already knew since. The 80s or 90s that neural networks are universal approximators so even like a one hidden layer neural network can in principle approximate everything but of course it's much more of a practical question which kind of architectures you can actually like reasonably train on on the data or on the task you're looking at i guess transformers are more a way of building an architecture that we can scale up a lot and that we can train very exactly. efficiently on the computational mm -hmm. we have yeah I also like your point about multimodality that we have already been using all of these architectures cross-modally. It also reminds me of the brain that in a lot of ways does a lot of cross-modal like integration, obviously, and also with neuroplasticity, we can frequently observe that if people are born blind, for example, then the visual cortex just gets repurposed for mm. audio 
like, um, processing and you constantly have this cross-modal usage of, of the same underlying kind of general algorithm that we have mm -hmm. in the brain that doesn't really care too much about data. If there's input data and if there's patterns in the input data, it can just yeah. make it work. <laughs> Good analogy, yeah. So maybe going back a bit to, to you and, and where you mm -hmm. come from. So I know you are also mm -hmm. a physicist that ended up in machine learning like mm -hmm. me and, and many others. So yeah, maybe can you describe your journey and how you ended up in machine learning and what kind of the physics way of thinking mm -hmm. brings you or like helps you? Chief. Yeah, so I think uh, I wouldn't have been doing machine learning now if I wouldn't have studied in Heidelberg because uh, after school I've decided to go for physics and uh, in some uh, places in Germany when you study physics you don't have that much freedom as you have in Heidelberg I would say because you can choose a lot of, uh, so you have to do the core physics courses but uh, like you can choose also many many other courses and I, I mean I explored a lot like I, what, I I did even philosophy courses, but I stuck with uh, with the computer science because I didn't have a lot of experience, like you could almost say none. I uh, didn't have any experience with the computer science in high school, so that couldn't have ever been a career choice for me at that time. So uh, in the third semester while doing physics, I, I learned to uh, program. And uh, then uh, with the same professor where I learned to program, uh, he was doing machine learning and I, I wanted to have some more uh, programming experience and I did a practical with him and uh, it was applied to machine learning. Actually statistics, but you know, the, this, uh, the <laughs> difference between statistics and machine learning is shady anyway. And and then I went on to do my bachelor thesis in physics, but on machine learning topics because there's this specialization in in physics in Heidelberg that you do uh, computational physics. And uh, as you could ask me what was the connection to physics. Uh, not, I mean, not really. Though I mean, you could say the math is a little bit uh, can can have. Um, overlap with physics, but uh, it wasn't a physical... I was doing cell tracking in biological images, so you could rather say it was biology. <laughs> but yeah, uh, but yeah they, they accepted it because as long as you have learned machine learning, you can easily apply it on, on uh, phys uh, physics problems too. And yeah, and then I... Uh, so while I was doing physics, I actually even uh, enrolled for the computer science uh, degree, and I, I got that too. Uh, and in my physics master, I actually again did computer science topics, uh, of course, also the physics uh, courses. So I could say that I was, uh, I had a lot of lectures in physics and I have my degrees in physics, but I di uh, didn't ever do really research in physics. I, the most I did was uh, seminars where I ha uh, had presentations about other people's research in physics, but uh, I didn't ever do uh, the research part of physics because somehow the um, computer science slash machine learning part was attracting me much, much more. I was uh, in my bachelor's, I was actually deciding between uh, astrophysics and, and this project with cell tracking. And I chose the latter because I was doing something and uh, I was trying to ask um, answer a question and program something that was actually a question of the biologists. And after I've implemented that features, they were uh, they were thankful. They were happy that looks something now works better, faster, and 
it was so much more rewarding for me uh, than uh, like the the cool stuff in astrophysics like look we have measured the mass of this this black hole some <laughs> many <laughs> kiloparsec away from us uh, and it was i mean it was cool and it's, i i always like to read about these things but i wouldn't imagine myself doing that i would like something that has more impact to society and even to the person sitting next to me because programming somehow has this effect that it you can really do something that uh, is already a product and uh, in physics i didn't have this uh, uh, this reward yeah i guess physics is at a very different stage of its development with mm -hmm. like particle physics and astronomy that it's much harder to gain like substantial new insights and to like in particle physics the prime example is like the higgs boson you have thousands upon thousands of people working for many years and then you find one thing and then you have <laughs> one publication with 10,000 names on it i guess but if i'm allowed to rant about this a little bit i mean at least then you have gathered a grain of sand of knowledge and you put it somewhere into that uh, that sahara desert of knowledge of uh, physics but in machine learning i even have the impression that some i i mean sometimes one does find out something about let's say lstms <laughs> but but in two years nobody's using lstms anyway anymore because they're using transformers so you have added a grain of sand of knowledge uh, in a desert that nobody cares about anymore. so <laughs> yeah. that's uh, my impression now i think that's true for most machine learning research yeah and that's the point with research but as long as uh, as a, when you already have learned something and you try to do an application from it, I think machine learning still has, has this huge potential of really impacting people. And I see that uh, the, there's a lot of interest from, from the audience because, uh, I mean, people are interested in my channel. I don't think because they're, I mean, a, a huge part of it is because they're interested in AI so, so, so much. It's also this kind of weird point in time where even the AI researchers are much more interested in AI than they used to be or of this ChatGPT and like Dali moment. Mm. I felt at, at the last at the AAAI in Washington, I really felt like everyone was so excited about understanding this and you know, being part of that wave of where AI is really hitting the world and we're kind of doing the research and at least are a bit more qualified to understand what's going on, even though it's still tricky to understand what's going on. Yeah, and that means that also a lot of people are joining the field now. And I only in few days you see three thousand new papers about AI on archive, and it's uh, it's. I have to say that the difference between two thousand nineteen when I started and now is the following. In two thousand nineteen, I was still at the beginning, and I wasn't that quick in reading papers and navigating uh, like archive. I, of course, I have more training now now for that. But uh, even back then, when I was a little untrained and uh, it was overwhelming because of this uh, novelty factor, it was still somehow I had the impression that if I want to learn now about uh, multimodal models, I can exhaustively read the last two years of that research. And now I cannot even exhaustively read the research of the last two months. It's uh, now it's so overwhelming and, and you really are researching in a topic and want to do a new thing and you're researching whether somebody has done that already and you have done your best at it and still a reviewer in a conference tells you, look, there is related work to yours that you didn't cite. And I was like, but I really did my best. <laughs> I really did my best. And still that isn't enough. It's uh, incredible. It's incredibly overwhelming and I had to change my mindset a lot. Like I had to renounce the idea that I can exhaustively uh, look at what have people have done exa in exactly my niche of research. 
which wasn't the case uh, a few years ago. It also leads to some, let's say, like structural problems because the field is kind of overwhelmed with the the amount of publications that are coming out. I mean, you had these problems with the big conferences like NIPS already since several years that you know, the peer reviewers or the referees are getting so overwhelmed because they have a certain amount of time besides all the work they are already doing to review papers. And now it's they have to do eight papers instead of two. So the quality deteriorates and the whole process gets much more noisy. Yeah. And that means people need to submit more papers to kind of, yeah, get the odds going for them that they if you submit five low quality mm -hmm. papers and you just hope one of them goes yeah. through i think that just overwhelms the whole process and makes the quality of the science much worse mm -hmm. i don't know if you have ideas of how, how the field could deal with that or... yeah i mean <laughs> i i'm quite radical about this and i don't know if uh, i think that wouldn't be ever implemented uh, in like for real but i am for a way more open kind of system where i mean i know this uh, peer review approval stamp is super important but that because so much bad stuff still gets through i don't think that even counts so much uh, actually and uh, it's way more important to have papers early on a platform like, like archive but the platform where you uh, where like an open review you can submit comments and you can discuss with the authors and of course the papers of Jan Lekun and the like will have most likes, most comments, most views, most reads and so on. And it's the case right now anyway. Um, but still, I know I can, I am a little PhD student and I have written a paper and people can visit it. They can review it, uh, of course, without this conference approval stamp, but they can give me scores. And I can have that for my portfolio in the same way that I won't ever have the citations uh, numbers of Jan de Kuhn. I also won't have the, the likes and the review scores of Jan de Kuhn, but it's still something. And uh, it, it's I, I would like it to be way more open. And th those reviews shouldn't be necessarily um, non-anonymous. But the way that conferences work right now is that you submit something, you're a very long under this anonymity period where depending on the type of conference sometimes you're not even allowed to archive sometimes you're not allowed to speak about it and i mean that's my only power as a phd student to speak about it <laughs> and if i'm not allowed to do that and then if i have to wait three months and let's say the paper gets rejected in the first round then it's six months uh, for the next conference again and it's just dead uh, or i have to be dead silent in a field where actually talking about something and getting something uh, quick out is, is very important so I'm actually very much against this anonymity periods about this uh, these reviews that uh, don't, don't allow you to um, talk about it and so on yeah, at least relatively many uh, conferences allow to, to put your stuff on archive yeah but not NLP conferences like the whole uh, all ACL kind of like game NLP and uh, ACL and knuckle and the ACL and so on they don't allow you to put on archive and that's that's bad okay. <laughs> But yeah, I suffer from that. <laughs> yeah, then we can definitely agree on that. Yeah, I thought in with new apps, I see and they yeah. are at least allowed to do that if it's anonymous. I think that's really important because again, with the with the fast moving fields, it can mean that if you submit the paper again and it's not an archive, then some someone else actually did yeah. your research already. But it's also interesting that the field is moving so fast. I mean, that brings a couple of advantages with it as well. Or it definitely yeah, makes it sure. exciting. <laughs> so maybe to, to get into a bit of uh, 
like content again. Um, you are teaching at the computational linguistics department, even though you're not a computational mm -hmm. linguist. But maybe you kind of can observe it a bit from mm -hmm. the outside. So, do you see that kind of our understanding of linguistics and computational linguistics has shifted in recent years with the breakthroughs of large language oh. models? <laughs> the understanding, you mean? I mean, whether there's new insight from uh, new linguistic insight from large language models? Kind of how we think about language has that been shifting? Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, I don't see a new theory or anything evolving, but I see the, uh, it in the following way. The the way of thinking about language has changed because now there is a sort of humbleness attached to the whole concept. Before, language was human spark of genius. There's uh, us doing it. Other animals are doing it maybe at a very, 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 very rudimentary degree, but uh, we are the best at it by far. Uh, it's It makes us intelligent. We are we're amazing because of this. I think that's uh, how um, people thought about it. Like a, a lot, um, I mean, the majority of, of um, thinkers were like this. And, and now we see that just by letting a model read the whole internet and letting it repeat the, the thing it read during training, a lot of uh, things emerge that we thought that, oh, you need rules to know that, or you need the theory to know that. But now it just emerges from repeating and look, uh, we haven't even achieved cat intelligence with uh, neural networks, but we have mimicked language uh, at the level of ChatGPT and GPT-4. And I think that will increase uh, as well, but already ChatGPT and GPT-4 are very, 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 very impressive. And it is way more than people have is expected so far. So look, uh, language isn't that hard if you just want yeah. to, you know, do what ChatGPT does. Of course, there's a lot of challenges and it can go way further than this. But it, I think it's it's a level of um, language production that people wouldn't have thought possible from something as stupid as a computer that is doing matrix multiplication and has read the whole internet. Therefore, I think it humbles us, like in the same way that uh, we humans had to understand that, look, the, the um, Earth is not the center of the universe, the sun is not the center of the universe, the galaxy is not the center of the universe. In the same way, we have uh, accepted now that maybe language is not the center of our intelligence. Yeah, I think ChatGPT, in a way, is also one of those big yeah, humbling moments like evolution, like uh, mm. yeah, the... Galileo and the Copernican revolution mm. that really shows us that the things we thought are the most important about our intelligence are being pushed to the back and now the very humble things that we can do just walk around in space and <laughs> exactly. fix our sink or something that's it's much harder to automate than writing good code. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, that's, that's also the problem we have been measuring uh, like AI systems by the things that are hard to us. Like we think it's hard to learn code and do code because we have spent so many years on doing that. And we think uh, accurate language production and high quality language production is hard because we have to go through school and a lot of teachers uh, have to give us feedback for how to write better and so on. Uh, and uh, we have now, uh, but, but the problem is we're bad at these things because evolution didn't uh, 
prime us for these things because it was way more important to throw a ball at the head of a lion and run away than it was to write compelling code back then. And uh, this means that what is hard for us isn't necessarily hard for other systems because we have seen that catching a ball and throwing a ball, these things that uh, most of us can do at a decent level, is actually extremely hard to implement in uh, humanoid robots or anything else so uh, yeah it's i think it's a bad uh, we are a bad benchmark and we are uh, always um, putting ourselves first and we think about intelligence as of human intelligence but we should have like a second uh, or, or a different a different league of thinking about these things and not uh, compare them to us all the time yeah that's also a nice parallel that we originally tried to teach computers language in the way that we teach children or teach people in school language by doing this rule-based approach, starting with the grammar and then filling in the words. And that's mm. also not how humans learn because <laughs> learning languages is quite easy for us if we do it as children and we just do it by immersion and learn it in context. But if we have to do mm. like kind of the rule-based reverse engineering approach, then we also suck at it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess in some ways language is also not as complex as we make it out to be because you kind of can start with this simple set or like this good enough way of, of learning language where you have the 200 most frequent words making up 60% of the language and you have mm -hmm. like simple grammatical rules that in a statistical sense are actually like a pretty small set of, of possibilities that you can make out. And if you just read a lot of text and the language models can already form statistical models of language pretty quickly to at least reproduce kind of the most frequent behavior. And I think that's also what we underestimate because we think there's 200,000 words in English and all the possibilities that you can, can think of, all the combinations are just mm -hmm. endless. But again, if you reduce it kind of to the basics and what's most important, then you can see a lot of examples if you read the entire internet and yeah, exactly. And even though, let's say the problem is, if even if the problem is a little bit more complicated than you have just uh, described it so far, uh, even though most of the problem is, is that, but uh, it's it's hard to imagine how many combinations and patterns can be stored in 175 billion parameters of GPT-3. And uh, it has even space, I mean, it has space to model these most common things and it has even space to store the less common things and memorize stuff uh, that is uh, uniquely encountered, for example, as an address or uh, something that doesn't have necessarily this this pattern or this rule attached to it so it's it's uh, hard for because we are thinking of uh, like yeah uh, abstract concepts and we somehow want to summarize what uh, gpt3 is thinking about or how is it's processing stuff but it's um, i mean it's really all these 175 billion parameters firing at the whole at the same time and it's not like just a part of it is firing everything is it's a dense thing and it's modeling a lot of uh, interactions and uh, it's reacting to uh, very in different inputs differently and it has place for the most common thing and it has place for the even not so common things it has a lot of space <laughs> and i would say that when we're training these models it's not even the um model size that's the bottleneck today i would say that the training data is the bottleneck if we really really want to go even further than GPT-4 and have uh, have even better emerging capabilities and capabilities that we haven't seen with GPT-4, 
the bottleneck is the data. It's not that much uh, mathematical discussion going on on the internet as we would like to train a model that is then a mathematician. But if it were, if we would have a lot of mathematical discussion data and a lot of physics exchange, like, I mean, a huge of a lot, like um, in the same way that people... Um, the same quantity that we have uh, of memes on the internet, if we would have uh, physics discussions, then I think we would have the next physicist uh, assistant. But uh, now it's the data is a bottleneck that we have a lot of, um, I know, um, ways of uh, breaking up with your boyfriend or slash girlfriend. We have a lot of ways to, um, I mean, all these human things that we care about, but there's less discussion about uh, medicine, about biology going on on the internet. And this is the bottleneck for the next even better and more competent um, chatbot. Yeah, I liked what you said about that and also in a different podcast that you don't think there's really too much generalization actually mm -hmm. going on. So it really depends on what kind of data you feed exactly. to it. Yeah. Because like we, we have this kind of limited view of generalization, but if it is in some sense kind of contained in the training data, it can achieve like something that we would consider to be generalization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. You don't, uh, you, <laughs> if you overfit on the whole world, <laughs> then you're done basically, yeah. because it's, you won't be surprised by any corner of the world if you have, have seen everything. And, and yeah, it's, uh, it's still, for, for me, it's still a, um, a thing I have to uh, see how it develops and uh, see more papers coming about that. But uh, right now with these large language models that have been trained on a lot of data, it's hard to even know whether it's new, uh, this task or uh, sample even, ex example that you're uh, putting it to or even if it has seen that in the training data. It's, it's really hard to... To, to know the, the novelty of, of one example. And uh, now that, uh, I, I forgot which paper it was, but there was outrage by reading on Twitter that some model trained even on the Big Bench benchmark training data because they didn't care about Big Bench. And uh, yeah, cool. <laughs> if now we're training on benchmark data, uh, then we, of course, need yeah. to come up with new benchmarks, and but not new samples for that benchmark, but even new tasks for that benchmark, because we want to test generalization in the sense that uh, also uh, to solve a task that we don't think it has seen during training. And uh, it's getting it's getting hard to follow. And I am a little bit under the impression that, yes, some things are kind of understood. So, yes, you teach it 1 plus 1 equals 2, and then it can do 1 plus 2 uh, on itself. Um but uh, it's uh, it's still, I think, very important that uh, the model has read about a topic to be able to express uh, good things about that topic. So I think that's a nice segue into your some of your own work where you looked at benchmarks and metrics for these mm -hmm. large language models. But considering you're looking at the multimodal domain, maybe we can just start with the basics and address the question what multimodality actually, multimodality actually means for a machine learner and why it's so important. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, usually <laughs> people are thinking about multimodality very simply somehow. I mean, uh, they think about, again, they put the human first and say, uh, we hear uh, we hear sound and we see images and we read text. Good. That's different modalities because we're processing them somehow through different sensors uh, in our body. But then already, uh, I, I I have a question about this way of thinking because, okay, I, I see images and I read text, but isn't that the kind of same thing? I mean, I it's still the visual apparatus and I, I parse, uh, I 
first have to visually process the text and extract the, the symbols over there. So I have to do object recognition and then I can start on with language processing and understanding. So uh, modalities are somehow more, um, more easy, uh, are kind of, uh, sometimes uh, when, when people think there are different modalities, they can be mapped to the same sensor, uh, like, for example, the visual sensor. Um, and uh, therefore, I, I was, when I was thinking about this problem, I, I came up to this kind of solution that uh, it's best not to think about uh, modalities from sensors, but to think about the type of content and the type of information they, uh, they usually capture. And um, it's um, so, yes, if you look into the world, you will see a lot of objects visually, like cats and dogs and uh, humans and cats, but you will not see the abstract concepts, like you will not see them. You maybe understand them and you kind of uh, get uh, them, but you do not see the abstract concepts that are um, depicted or written down as a symbolic object in text. So it's, uh, if you have a bijective mapping uh, from anything, everything you, um, like the whole data there's on the internet or on visual vision and on the same, and the whole data that is on text, then you would say they're the same modality, but there is no, um, you couldn't, you couldn't translate one into the other and not lose something. Uh, therefore I would say there's, there's two different modalities because the information content that is depicted in both of them is very, very different. Um, and uh, that's how I like to th think about it. But of course, it, it's a bit, I mean, I need this definition only if I think hard about it. But if I'm uh, giving a talk and explaining to people what I'm doing with multimodality, I tell them, well, I mean, pictures and audio and uh, and text, they're different modalities because they're, they're different. <laughs> but for me, that definition was a little bit insufficient, especially yeah, when yeah. we're thinking about transformers that just need somehow vectors. So at the end, you translate everything to vectors anyway. So there's, um, they have the same formats. They have the same, uh, the same sensor for the transformer is, is this, I mean, it's this input uh, token vector and anything, every modality is, is in the end a vector. So it has the same format. It doesn't have any um, difference in that aspect. I think the difference comes from the uh, content of this, these, this, these vectors because you won't read uh, too much about, uh, so you, you will read the, the word beauty and God and um, things like that in, in text. Uh, and you will speak about color in text, but you won't see it uh, like the, as you see it in, in images. And I think, therefore, about content more and not so much about format. And especially in text or language in general is a very special modality because it's not kind of natural in the same sense that you might physically define vision or as the mm -hmm. activation of or like color or wavelengths. But language is already kind of the extraction from several modalities by human brains that has culturally evolved. Yeah, it's kind of a second order of abstraction of a lot of the other modalities. Yeah, but uh, because it's a second order of abstraction, it can create some some uh, structures and it can create some relations that you don't see uh, so much in, in other modalities. Like I, I think much of uh, philosophy is something that you can really, really, really ni nicely write about, but it's very hard to draw about <laughs> philosophy, like put pictures about philosophy. And uh, therefore there is uh, this 
new information that emerged from from manipulating symbols and ideas in, and knowledge in, in text that I don't think would have arisen from from just uh, the other modalities. So uh, I think from from that kind of abstraction and perspective, new new information and conclusions and the ways to think about stuff has emerged. So new information. Yeah, in a way, it's a tool that helps us kind of structure our thoughts in a way that we couldn't without this tool. It's kind of externalized thought that helps us share it with other people, but also like even for ourselves, mm -hmm. if you like do a mm -hmm. math exercise sheet during when you study physics, <laughs> it's definitely something you can't just do in your head yeah. anymore. And the, you know, the, the power of the symbolic representation is so is so great. I mean, you see that with scientific breakthroughs that sometimes it's just like introducing a certain notation with calculus by Newton mm. and Leibniz. <laughs> just creating the notation itself is such a powerful step to, to understanding the problem. Yeah, because then it has rules on its own and you don't really have to understand differentiation to have an equa a symbolic equation and apply the rules of symbolic differentiation to it. You, I mean, you will say uh, derivative of x squared is 2x without even knowing what the derivative is. You just apply that symbolic rule to, to that uh, string. Yeah, it's... <laughs> yeah, maybe that's also a clue why these large language models are so powerful mm -hmm. because they kind of form the symbolic representation of language that they can manipulate and even though they don't understand anything in quotation exactly. marks. Exactly, yeah. We have prepared uh, the world for them by doing the second-order abstraction, by writing up a lot of stuff and they yeah. have read it and now they, I mean, we have done the difficult stuff about it, <laughs> extract language from, yeah, yeah. I mean, from the world. That's what people forget about large language models that we came up with the language. <laughs> so humans at least contributed something. Yeah, maybe connecting this a bit to your own research. You, you already talked about benchmarking and you, you wrote two papers that looked at benchmarking and, and performance mm -hmm. metrics directly. So maybe you can quickly mention what you did there and why this is relevant to our current discussion. Yeah, so um, again, I see because there's, I mean, better and better models which can do a lot of things and they get performance, uh, they can do visual question answering, they can do um, a lot of things that were previously not done so well by, by previous architectures. Um, the thing is now that they can do really all of the tasks at the same time. And the question is, what can they process or what, what can they understand that they can really solve all, all these tasks? Because one way to, um, to think about it, like if you uh, don't give them the benefit of doubt, you say that, well, uh, they have just so many parameters that they can store uh, VQA-related patterns, they can store uh, this tasks-related patterns, and they don't really understand that there's a so much of a connection between those two tasks. Uh, therefore, we thought about a benchmark that uh, that goes down and tests for specific phenomena that usually are uh, realized in language connected, grounded in vision, uh, such that uh, we test whether, look, did it understand counting can it count because if you count then you can uh, do visual question answering with questions that uh, ask for a numeral um, do you um, can you resolve this coreference like uh, we say um, the woman was in the picture and she was wearing red does it understand that she refers to woman and woman refers to the picture back there and uh, so we break broke it down uh, by um by phenomena and we're testing especially for these phenomena and the results were kind of underwhelming because uh, I mean still I, I don't give a lot of credit to these models because 
they are very bad at these basic uh, fundamental building blocks of doing then other tasks. So uh, there is reason to believe that they are solving visual question answering by, by not really understanding the fundamental building blocks needed to do that, but because they are uh, somehow overfitting the data set. And pro the problem with overfitting is that it's even harder to detect it when you train on large amounts of data. Uh, it's easy to overfit on 100 examples, but uh, you cannot think of overfitting on a million examples. But I think that's still kind of possible. They kind of, they, they, when we collect the data sets, we collect data for a reason. And this introduces some kind of bias into the data set and therefore we think we have tested the model for visual question answering understanding but we have actually tested it whether it can solve this data set sampled by us to test visual question answering so it solves the data it doesn't really solve the task or show competence on the task because our benchmark showed for multimodal models that they are not uh, really good at uh, solving the fundamental building blocks like uh, recognizing actions or who uh, who is the actant of an action uh, co-reference resolution uh, what they could kind of do is the uh, um, like recognize the existence or non-existence of an object in in an image but that was about it i mean when it comes to more complicated stuff it was bad yeah, therefore, the, the next paper was about, um, well, okay, what, what can be a reason for them being so bad at doing tasks? And um, there is, again, reason to believe that the models don't really look at both modality at the same time, especially if the bias, I mean, these clues that let you solve the task is in one modality more than in the other. For example, for visual question answering, when you ask, is there a cat in the image? Already because you're asking about the cat, because you came up with the idea of a cat, it's more likely that there is a cat in the image because you're not asking uh, So in, in the data set collection sense. So of course, you could ask about a non-existing uh, object, but usually when you collect data, you look around in the image and you say, oh, is there a cat? And the model has to answer yes. So just from this plausibility that uh, some answers are more plausible than others, uh, the models could solve um, eventually solve the task. So... Uh, because uh, when when you just delete the information of of uh, the image, they're still very 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 good. So they just uh, they answer uh, questions about images from text alone, and this is weird. They it should they shouldn't do that. And uh, therefore, I was uh, wondering whether these models actually really use both modalities if they really use both information. Because uh, if you delete the image, they don't really care for some tasks so but they could still use the image it's just that it uh, ne doesn't necessarily um, impact them when they don't have the image and and this is what we found that they kind of uh, they still use both modalities uh, surprisingly um, much I, I would have expected them to to really ignore images at some time but uh, they still after training are capable of using both modalities it's just uh, this weird phenomenon that uh, if they don't have an image, they don't need it to solve the task. But when they have an image, they do look at it. <laughs> they do uh, take it into account. It's just that, um, yeah. Uh, but 
that's that's it on on average on the corpus but if we look at examples yes there are some examples where the image matters just 20 percent and the text does 80 percent of the job of getting at the answer and uh, this is also one way then to to see to select better data for benchmarks because uh, one could look at uh, these examples that actually don't uh, where the model doesn't really need both modalities to get to the answer and you also looked at several of the classical models that are out there and looked at how they kind of weight these different contributions and found that there are significant differences. Yeah, exactly. So what I uh, expected before was that, look, uh, visual question answering means that uh, the text is more important and the vision is less important. And I would have expected all models to be more reliant on the text than on vision. But it's actually different. I mean, it depends very much on how the models are trained and, of course, also their data, uh, that that some models were actually preferring to uh, the text more, uh, some uh, were balanced and some were more visually focused. So uh, there is this imbalance uh, and there's this model preference, which is um, so on, on the same task, models, uh, different models solve it differently. And that was a surprising thing. And uh, but what was an unsurprising thing is that clip, the, the one that is uh, trying to uh, map the both modalities to the same space, that is balanced. And that kind of makes sense because it's just at a very late stage, at the very last vector that it combines the two and it um, and it um, um, compares the two. And this is also a nice sanity check that the, that the score of calculating a modality contribution works well because, uh, yeah, I mean, CLIP usually keeps uh, the, uh, like, summarizes the whole modality into one vector and only then compares it to the other modality. And that's balanced. And that's how it was ex expected. And did you see that the balanced embeddings kind of achieved better performance or better generalization? Or is that in general something desirable? Um, the problem is with these balanced embeddings that they're clip embeddings. And clip embeddings are are limited in, in the way, uh, in what you can do with them. Uh, because if you want to, for example, do question answering with them, you have to, uh, you have the image and you have all possible answers that you could give uh, and compare pairwise uh, similarities between them. So um, it, it's more of, um, it, it cannot give you, how should I, you, you have to do 20,000 comparisons if you have to have 20,000 answers. So it's, a clip is not a great one at this. And there are more specialized architectures exactly for that. Uh, and therefore, it, it's... And also, it's um, because it summarizes the whole image into a vector, it summarizes the whole text into a vector. It, uh, and we have seen that on this benchmark that tests for fine-grained phenomena, that it loses... In, like super fine-grained information about, I mean, holistic stuff, it can say a lot, but uh, it uh, sometimes uh, summarizes the text, let's say, too much. It's uh, focusing to, on objects, but not on other stuff like verbs between objects that uh, describe actions. But I think with a lot of data and with maybe a larger hidden dimension for these vectors, this problem could be alleviated. So, and... Um... What you mentioned about the clip um, embeddings is that you only do the integration of the modalities mm -hmm. at a later stage. And in your MAGMA paper about multimodal augmentation, you also basically yeah, dealt with this idea of starting with a large language model and then fine-tuning on a modality. So 
maybe you can talk about this a little bit and how this relates. Yeah. So the thing is, um, so, um, I just criticized about clip that its problem. It's also the training data that it, uh, that it didn't have. Uh, so it has a lot of images and captions. And the problem is with images and captions is that captions of images are way more linguistically unvaried and uh, content wise more boring than stack overflow yeah so <laughs> it's uh, it's a lot of uh, boring stuff happening in captions of images i mean after a while you kind of have seen it all and you cannot jump further in linguistic capability under and understanding that comes from that so training clip from scratch on on text and on images uh, that are image captions is doomed to limit it at the diversity that you usually see in captions and which is very little Therefore, um, and this sub, this problem happens with uh, a lot of multimodal models because there are as, other models too that, for example, initialize the language branch with uh, with weights from a language model, but then during tuning together on image captions, it specializes on image captions, so it loses all this gen. Uh, it's catastrophic forgetting again. It's it's losing all these important capabilities of language it had before and specializes on image captions. So it becomes a super boring uh, language model now. Therefore, the idea is here to to fix the language model. And uh, this idea is now overly represented even in diffusion models because diffusion models have a fixed la uh, language model too. Uh, because you fix the language model that has been trained on Stack Overflow, on news, on Wikipedia, so it has all these uh, super desirable uh, capabilities. You freeze it, and then you tune the the visual branch to kind of map uh, the image tokens into the space, into the linguistic space of the um, of the language model. So it, it's I think about it as a, as a translation. You translate images uh, to to the the, the, the token space of the language model and then the uh, language model can now take uh, visual tokens because they're translated to its own space and talk about it. it and it talks about vision now like it has previously uh, talked about text and uh, it it has this this nice upside that it's a ling uh, language model with all the linguistic capabilities and now it can also see images and talk about them yeah that's very cool yeah, but that's in machine learning. This idea was concurrently explored by everybody. <laughs> and that's the problem with uh, multimodal machine learning now. Everybody is doing it. And it's uh, super hard to really say I am the only one that did something because no. Uh, and yeah, this was actually a really nice collaboration with the guys from Aleph Alpha. It was them who did uh, basically the work. I, I, I'm the supervisory author on that uh, you know the last authors in machine learning vision and the first authors to the work <laughs> <laughs> yeah classic I, I actually also wanted to ask about that because i mean also related question i wanted to ask about yeah in this field of large language models of these in general large models you know kind of the scientific research can compete with their industry because it also became apparent at these large machine learning conferences if you saw a paper presentation with i don't know how many gpus for i don't know how many thousand yeah kind of thing <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that it became pretty clear that uh, this is google again and yeah. no academic researcher can do this kind of research so how 
yeah, how does it work with the computational kind of demands of, of especially this field? How, how can you compete? Yeah, not in training models, because uh, that's one of the reasons why training models was not an option anymore since multimodality became so sexy for everybody. And uh, therefore, benchmarking and analysis and metrics and stuff are, uh, are the thing I can touch on. And that's what I'm doing. And I would advise everybody to either do that in an academic setting or start to collaborate with the industry uh, because there are uh, no, uh, groups from Google and DeepMind so on and uh, Facebook who collaborate with industry uh, with uh, academia and if you happen to be in that kind of collaboration then uh, well done and you can you can train something but otherwise no i mean tra training uh, things now that are beating ChatGPT, like, <laughs> and, and the problem is, uh, so uh, what I was very unhappy, or let's say I had mixed feelings about it when GPT-4 came out, it's basically ChatGPT, but better because it also promised uh, uh, image understanding and it, it's multimodal. And I was like, yeah, great. Now, cool. I have now a baseline I can never even hope to beat and i it's yeah. even a baseline i cannot even uh, ask for uh, what it says on some example because it wasn't released yet and when it will be released this multimodal part of gpt4 it will cost so uh, yeah cool i have i can pay to get a baseline that obviously will be better than anything i do so great yeah cool <laughs> yeah so yeah Yeah, the models that you use for your papers are then all publicly available. Yeah, and yeah. you can download them. Yeah. And running them is actually much cheaper than. Yeah, training. exactly. Training them costs. Uh, like, you have to have the double amount of uh, GPU size to to do one training iteration uh, compared to what you need to do one inference. And of course, you don't need to do uh, so. It's you don't do usually one training iteration. You do lots of training iterations. So that's that's unfeasible. And uh, and loading them is something that's still possible. And of course, harder and harder with increasingly large language models where you need four of the GPUs and you're basically occupying <laughs> uh, the cluster of the university <laughs> because of because you wanted to load that uh, 175 billion parameter Bloom model. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, I, for me, it was a it was a very hard lesson to learn that. So I read the Llama paper where they used 2048 GPUs or something like that, and uh, it was like cool. I mean, not the Helix Baden-Württemberg cluster doesn't even have the order of magnitude of that uh, that thing. It's yeah. like no. It's yeah, it's fascinating. So I don't know how how the scaling laws are going to develop if this is actually going to continue this trend that people are just scaling up these models and if that means that okay people can't really use them anymore maybe not in terms of uh, size of parameters and uh, there's also now a lot of uh, work going on that is uh, making them smaller or easily adaptable and so on so we have seen that models that uh, like palm has five uh, 540 billion parameters and 30 billion llama models can catch up in terms of performance with it uh, in terms of capabilities so size is not all and i think a lot of research will go into what training data is best to have curated such that uh, the models uh, learn the good things fast and and quickly but again it's something that so i if i if i think now of, of a heuristic to collect uh, good data 
where would I store it? And I still wouldn't have 2048 GPUs to train a Llama model on that. So yeah. it's it's good, cool. But uh, if one has su- such ideas, one really has to find collaborators from the industry because otherwise, uh, I, I told you, it's a whole button Württemberg cluster. It's not the size that can even compare to what one group of Facebook yeah. uses. So yeah, do you see a trend of kind of the uh, fields still kind of staying open or with this? AI arms race now with the big tech companies all trying their hands mm. at this, like after the success of ChatGPT, trying their hands on that. You think it's going to open up or remain kind of open, or is it going to be like inaccessible now with OpenAI, which is ironically <laughs> yeah. OpenAI, but it's not so <laughs> not open anymore. Yeah, it's it's an interesting development what we're seeing because I expected that if OpenAI now has closed its doors and says uh, we are banking this model and we're doing uh, money with it, that other companies will do so too. And yes, we have seen some of them, but it has at the same time sparked the whole range of let's do open source language models and uh, and they were at first a little bit restrictively licensed that you couldn't do commercial applications on them so open ai was still the way to go for uh, commercial applications because you paid them but you could then do money uh, with the applications you where you use those language models but now with falcon and and i think increasingly more models because uh, i mean there will be more. I'm super sure about that. We saw that uh, even uh, there's there's they they are open source and you can use them for commercial applications and do money with them. Where I would be super uh, careful when when doing these things is what, how the whole legal situation will evolve in the US and the in the EU. Like, what exactly does it uh, mean that? Um, so let's say I'm doing now a product to to generate a lot of images. Will I get eventually sued that uh, I'm generating uh, images that are using copyrighted content because I'm I have been using copyrighted content in my data set, in my training data set? And uh, Adobe Firefly, yeah. for example, has trained the whole diffusion model just on on non copyrighted content, such that they are sure that what you produce with their model uh, will. Um, will be safe but uh, yeah i mean the the legal situation is still very undeveloped and i would be a little bit concerned on how to start something because i'm afraid that the legal case would just kill whatever one started so uh, i guess open source will still be um so without thinking of regulation open source is somehow now very powerful and very um uh, much out there and I don't think open AI will will stop that with its behavior but regulation who knows what that will do yeah it's very exciting times and as usual <laughs> regulation is lagging behind a bit mm-hmm. the faster the developments are but yeah with stuff like stable diffusion mm-hmm. also coming out of Heidelberg you'll see that the small-scale academic models can still compete with OpenAI. Yeah, but only after they have partnered up with Stability AI, because the original paper for latent diffusion models, which is the, the basically stable diffusion, uh, they they just did a cool CVPR paper. People were like, yeah, cool. But only after they have trained on internet scale with the Stability AI, they could reach the the impact they have reached. So their uh, collaboration with the industry was crucial. So it gets on top of things. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Yeah. that's a fair point. (laughs) 
Um, now I notice we haven't talked about your science communication and we don't have too much time left. So maybe we can also segue to this topic. Mm -hmm. Maybe as a very general question, what made you start your YouTube channel and <laughs> what keeps you going? Well, uh, during the COVID times, I had to teach online and I thought like, why not teach to an even broader audience than my students in, at university? And I found it very rewarding, especially in that time where there wasn't much interaction going on, uh, receiving comments, positive ones on my videos. Uh, it was it was a great reward. And um, what keeps me going? Yeah, it's this sense that I have an impact, that I've explained something to somebody and now they understand something. And it's, it's a kind of reach that uh, through just, Uh, papers and publishing I cannot have it's a different audience that I reach because with papers it's those people that are working the same thing they they are highly specialized and experts in what they do uh, and and they are a handful uh, or let's say it's machine learning so they're not a handful there are many hands full but uh, it's, yeah. it's a certain size and then uh, having a reach where really any Body can understand uh, what uh, what I do is even greater. And of course, not all my videos are really uh, for everybody, but I sometimes do have these videos uh, that uh, one can see from the views uh, whether the topic is more light or it's more heavy. Because if I do a highly specialized topic, like uh, let's explain LoRa, uh, then it's super, uh, it has not so many views. But if I explain like uh, eight things to know about large language models, it has a lot of views. So um, yeah, when, when doing YouTube is important to think about a niche so that you do something that nobody else does. But when you do something that nobody else does, usually uh, it's, it's a topic that also not that many people watch because uh, cat videos, you, there's a lot on the internet and everybody can watch cat videos on the internet. So there is a potential that a cat video reaches millions of views in terms of two weeks. Uh, but also yeah. if you start with cat videos, there's so many competitors also publishing cat videos that uh, that you as a newcomer wouldn't succeed. And if you start with super specialized content, there will be always people watching you because they don't have anybody else to watch for exactly the same topic. But also it means that no, uh, not everybody that watches cat videos will also uh, watch explanations about large language models. So uh, Uh, there, you kind of yeah. put yourself a cap to, to viewership um, with the level of specialization you go. And the more you open up and the more uh, everybody can follow uh, some content, the more views it will get. So you shouldn't um, compare yourself to others uh, that are doing uh, different things, actually, that are doing more um, non-specialized things and have a lot of viewers because it's an unfair comparison. The target audience is just broader. Yeah. yeah, I guess the specialized content can also be super important. I think in machine learning, there's a couple of YouTube channels that are extremely helpful because in, especially for the specialized stuff, it can also be just go great length if you have nice visualizations and actually mm -hmm. a good explanation. I mean, Janne Kircher's channel, for example, you just mm -hmm. go through papers for one hour and that mm -hmm, can mm -hmm. already be super helpful. It's like a yeah. journal club, but digitally. So I really appreciate the specialized content as well that might not get as many views, but the views that it gets are actually people that work in the field and that really exactly, profit yeah. from it. They're valuable views. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, 
I think with your channel, especially you, you also spend a lot of time doing visualizations, doing video editing and all these kind of things. So how did you get into that? And how do you find the time to, to keep on doing that? Because I can yeah, imagine. I think as a, what one learns is because you asked me before, what is it that, uh, oh no, they started drilling. <laughs> do you hear that? <laughs> yeah. We can yeah. try to edit that. No, yeah, yeah, I, I, I don't know how much it will last, but yeah. Um, uh, so you started me what uh, what how did the physics skills help in machine learning and i think the most important physics skill i learned is that i can learn anything i put myself to to learn and yeah video editing was exactly that i couldn't do video editing and i started yeah. hey let's do video editing and let's draw something and of course in the beginning it was bad but it gets better and better every time <laughs> And you also get, yeah, I think I can try to edit it, but it's it's not so bad. We can still mm. understand you. Uh, yeah, so, so you probably also got more efficient with video editing. Yeah, exactly. So after a while, I've, uh, I have I could do that. It just took me a lot of time. So I outsourced it a little bit. So the video editing is not something I do anymore. Uh, but I do the visualizations, I do the whole video and so on, but it's the video editing that I don't do anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Again, from that time perspective, have you like, had certain periods where you focused on that a lot or where you found time or made time besides your PhD or is it kind of always running at the same uh, Yeah, sometimes level, I had to do some work for my PhD and I just didn't have time for the channel. And one can see my upload frequency that sometimes I have busy periods. Uh, but yeah, it's always the side thing. It, uh, it's not so far the main thing because I want to finish the PhD. So uh, I really focus on the PhD first and the channel is something I do when I have extra time. Yeah. Is it... Can you see it becoming a main thing or are you thinking about it's going into one possible future? Yeah, I just didn't decide what I want to do with my future. But uh, whatever I do, so I, I wouldn't imagine myself doing this really full time, but uh, I would imagine it doing as a side thing on whatever I do next. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe you already mentioned some takeaways or like how to think about audience, but are there any like big insights from doing science Oof. communication uh, in the recent years? Yeah, I mean, uh, you have to, I mean, it's easy when you have a topic that people are already interested about uh, because you don't have to make it sexier than it already is. If you talk about stable diffusion, people will just come because of stable diffusion. But if you think about some molecular pathway nobody cares about, then you have to make it appealing and you have to make an extra effort into yeah. making it appealing. And uh, yeah, that's a, a thing where you have to ask yourself, do I have this extra energy for making something appealing that is not yet already at the high interest peak from the audience? Because if, if you don't have that energy, then go with something that people are already interested about. Yeah. Uh, but if doing something that people are interested about and you yeah. are not interested about, that's also not working. So yeah, that's that's what I like about machine learning. I'm already interested in it anyway. And people are too. So it's the perfect combination. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's kind of a luxury. Um, and maybe also more generally about your PhD. Have you gained any insights in recent years or 
are there any things you would do differently now about like how, how to approach mm -hmm. research and how to structure maybe mm, your day? No, uh, I mean, yeah, I cannot say I did everything right, <laughs> but uh, it's um, <laughs> maybe one thing I would have done differently at the very beginning, just compare myself a little bit less with others, uh, not necessarily psychologically, but in terms of related work in papers. Because uh, as I told you, it's super, 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 super hard to be the first and the most novel and the most anything. Even to this latest iJEPA paper of Jan Lekun, I could say uh, there's so much similar stuff and they just did it a bigger scale, so it's not novel and so on, push it down. But if you do that at my level and push yourself down by saying with related work there, related work there, related there, there everywhere, it pushes yourself too much down and people actually appreciate your work still. Uh, but um, yeah, it's, it's just do your own thing and be less afraid of scooping and get your thing out there. And yeah, I mean, uh, paper rejections can come from multiple reasons and they're random anyway. So just try your luck. <laughs> with that <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not, not taking papers and paper rejections <laughs> yeah. too personally I think that was also one of my biggest lessons because you put your heart and soul into it <laughs> and so much time and then <laughs> yeah, you usually don't get very high quality feedback um yeah maybe uh, more generally branching out about your favorite content or like science content or also favorite books oh yeah when it comes to books uh, it wasn't like it was new content but it was so well written that it was just a pleasure to read it uh, Francois Cholet Deep Learning with Python the second edition is just a really good beginner's book and uh, especially in this world where machine learning books are already outdated while you're writing them, you just enter the last sentence and it's outdated. Uh, that's that's really bad. Yeah. I, I would I don't find books very helpful. I find papers very helpful. But of course, for experts, it, it's a good uh, resource to read papers. But for beginners, I think that book uh, is is a really gold golden resource because uh, the writing style is so crystal clear and it has. Uh, Every sentence follows logically from the previous, which which is really great. But then, of course, more uh, up-to-date things like uh, Yannick's channel, that's, that's always a great resource. I love uh, the machine, learn, machine Learning Street Talk um, podcast and YouTube channel that is always about the more philosophical things that you don't really actually need in research. When, but when you try to think about a bigger picture from some time to time, that's, um, that's also really, really nice. And uh, because I know I, I, I am a physicist, at least a training, I love Sabine Hossenfelder's video and, uh, and she sometimes does about AI topics, uh, something as mm -hmm. well. And, and I love her take because um, she's always really well informed. Yeah. It's definitely giving you mm -hmm. kind of new angles on <laughs> like how to think about science uh, stuff on particle physics yeah. I've also seen and <laughs> kind of reflected my experience when I did my master's in mm -hmm. focusing on particle physics and some of the frustrations I experienced there mm. yeah so we we covered a lot of ground <laughs> and I know you also have to leave yeah. soon and the construction site has been, has woken up behind um, you but is there anything else you you wanted to cover or 
Actually, I, I know. I thought I yeah, found yeah, your question we, spot on, we, and we I think discussed we discussed so a lot of things in actually not that much time. We we were very productive. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. That was a productive morning session. So. Thanks for hosting yeah, me. Thanks it was a great lot for fun. joining us, and yeah, it was a great conversation. Thanks, and you with your podcast. <laughs> yeah. Keep doing what you're doing with your YouTube channel. Yeah. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. yeah. That would be nice. <laughs> Probably see you around on campus. Heidelberg is a small world. <laughs>